Did you know that olive oil is at its peak of flavor and nutrition right after it's fresh pressed at harvest time? That's why my favorite olive oil is delivered to me direct from the latest harvest, thanks to the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and as a listener of Intelligent Medicine, you can try a bottle of their finest artisanal olive oil, normally $39, for just $1 with no obligation to buy anything else. I've been enjoying these Harvest Fresh olive oils for years. They are far and away the brightest, most lively, and flavorful olive oils I've ever tasted. Their antioxidants and polyphenols are off the charts because they're fresh from the harvest. They make store-bought olive oils taste dull and flat by comparison. Taste for yourself. Check out this generous trial offer and get your $39 bottle for a buck with no obligation to buy anything else. Visit MyFavoriteOliveOil.com. In my case, it truly is. MyFavoriteOliveOil.com. MyFavoriteOliveOil.com. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Our guest is the author of a newly revised and expanded edition of a book that originally came out in 2014. It's Defending Beef. I interviewed her back then. We're reprising that interview because there's a lot more to discuss now. The Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat. And we're tackling meat myths. And one of the prevalent uh, meat myths is that Meat substitutes, you know, the Beyond Meat and the Impossible Burger examples uh, are healthier and better for the planet. And there's a lot yeah. of mojo behind that because, well, uh, there's sort of a collusion between scientific uh, and medical authorities. Uh, they just issued the Lancet report, the Eat Lancet report, which urges people worldwide to consume less meat to save the planet and to improve their health. And that's creating an opening for uh, big food and agribusiness to uh, introduce all kinds of faux meat products, which are based on cheap commodities like uh, soy, wheat, and corn, uh, and uh, chemicalized ingredients as alternatives. What say you? Yep. Exactly. I mean, I, first of all, that that report, it's important to note that it was primarily funded by a vegan activist. So it's a very wealthy woman who believes that people shouldn't be eating meat. And, you know, that sort of drove the conclusion of the report before it even got started. And as you just mentioned, Dr. Hoffman, I mean, I think the fact that the food industry makes its profits through processing, you know, creating foods with a lot of ingredients that have a lot of processing that's gone into it and taking, as you said, cheap inputs and creating foods that are kind of, um, you know, similar to real foods that we're used to eating and telling us that this is not only healthier for us, but it's ecologically better. It's really just kind of a huge scam. I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't have even believed that myself, you know, in the years that I was a vegetarian and I was, you know, eating, um, I didn't eat a lot of faux meat, but I did eat, you know, some veggie burgers, you know, low, yeah, low, low tech. I might have eaten some low tech, you know, veggie burgers. Now we're talking about a whole different generation of these that many of them are based on very high technology type ingredients that are um, things that they invented at the you know at the molecular level, the genetically modified ingredients to, for example, create the illusion that the thing was bleeding. You know that was that was one of the things that. And if you actually watch it, you know my son was sitting on the sofa with me, and we were watching the PBS News Hour, and they were showing some of the the processing of some of this stuff, and he looked. 
looked at me and said, why would anyone want to eat that stuff? <laughs> and I said, yeah, really good question. I mean, I, I think a lot of us who've kind of investigated these think there's a pretty big yuck factor to it, you know. But just the bottom line, too, is it's not really healthier food. There's, you know, very good reporting that's shown that these are, for example, very high in sodium, a lot of them, and all of the ingredients are these really highly processed foods. So rather than the kind of, I think, nutrient-rich, you know, as real as possible type foods that we all really need so badly to get the nourishment that we require, um, we're being told we should have these and this is a healthier alternative. And on the ecological side, there's kind of an assertion that these things are less um, environmentally, you know, damaging. And even if you're talking about the sort of most conventional kind of industrial type of meat production, I still have not seen any good proof that the, you know, the high-tech veggie burger is a better ecological solution. But if you're talking about the type of meat that I'm advocating for, you know, which is a truly an ecological positive force, then there's no comparison. You know, that you, you you can't do that with these highly processed, you know, multi ingredient, you know, soy and wheat based type, um, you know, veggie burgers. Well, what about, uh, you know, the issue of scalability? Because, you know, it's one thing to talk about uh, going to Whole Foods and getting grass fed meat or, you know, organic uh, animal products. Uh, but they they tend to be expensive, and the world's population is surging. We have to feed uh, a hungry planet, and it's thought that we need to resort to, um, you know, cheaper vegetable-based uh, foods. Is that a legitimate uh, critique? Yeah, well, I think it's a legitimate question, um, absolutely. And I've, you know, I started working on these issues over 20 years ago now. So I've, I've talked with a lot of people in agriculture over the years about this and agricultural economists. And I've read tons of reports trying to assess, you know, what you could do with the food system to make it more ecologically sound. And one thing that becomes absolutely clear is there's actually no proof. I've never seen it. I have looked for it high and low. There is no proof that you couldn't replace the current types of, you know, meat production systems with a more ecologically sound system, that, you know, that there's insufficient land, for example. That's something that gets said a lot. One of the reasons that, that that's true is because, um, for example, the work of the Savory Institute, which is based in Colorado but works around the world, they've shown that where you have well-managed grazing, so this kind of goes back to the how, you know, the how you're doing things versus is it the cow. They've shown if you have really well-managed systems where you have animals integrated in them, in them or just even straight grazing systems, but you're managing the grazing really well, you dramatically increase not just the ecological health of the system, but you actually increase how much output you can have from that system in terms of how much food you're producing. So if you focus on that how question, once again, you can increase how much meat you produce from the the exact same amount of land. And when you do that, for example, they did an analysis of North America and they found that not only would there be sufficient land to produce all of the beef that we currently produce on grass, you know, on grazing areas, you would actually have about a 30% surplus of available land. So this idea that there's 
you know, a land shortage or you couldn't possibly do this uh, is just not correct. Now, it might, it's true, it could, it might end up costing more, and I think that is a reality that we have to face. But I would argue, you know, in the 1950s, Americans spent about 31% mm-hmm. of their income on food. Yeah. Today, we spend around 9%. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, I'm not suggesting we should all be spending 30% of our income on food, but it's just important to keep a perspective on, you know, what we value, you know, what we invest in in the short term is going to have a long-term impact on ourselves and our health and as well on the planet. So I think food is one of those things we've gotten used to very cheap food, but we're seeing the downstream effects of that now. We're seeing that with unhealthy humans and we're seeing right. that with all of these ecological problems. So I think I think the, the idea that it might cost somewhat more is probably probably a reality. And, you know, I think policies should help with that. You know, government policies for agriculture and so forth should make this more affordable in terms of making this the goal of how we produce food. But, so uh, but it's economy, probably true these are more expensive. Uh, pennywise pound foolish because the yes. uh, drain on productivity, uh, the enormous expenditures uh, for, you know, medical diseases that are avoidable. Uh, you know, th- these are, we have to put those into the equation, right? Exactly. I mean, that's the kind of the, uh, you know, the so-called externalized costs. And whether you're talking about polluting, you know, we have this enormous dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico now that's the size of the state of New Jersey. And this is all from agricultural chemicals that have run off and are run down the streams of the United States from the center of the country down into the Gulf of Mexico. These are the types of costs that we don't really see when we're buying groceries. And obviously, we have this enormous increase in the number of people with diet-related diseases in the United States because we're really focusing so much on producing cheap calories rather than having, uh, you know, systems that are ecologically regenerative and actually produce nutrient-rich foods that really support human health. So it's a whole shift of mind frame that I really think we we need to undertake. So let's tackle some more of the meat myths. Uh, one of them, you know, we've we've alluded to is that meat is the cause of heart disease. There's very inconclusive evidence about that, and there's actually evidence to the contrary. And what's what's wrong with you know some of the studies that have pointed out a connection? Yeah, well, it is. It's that is such a ubiquitous idea. You know, as I was saying earlier, I remember my parents thinking that we need to stop eating butter, you right. know. And also just, you know, cut back on our red meat and all these things because they were hearing and reading these kinds of things in the mainstream media. Um, you know, increasingly, I, I, I go through in the book, I go through a lot of um, kind of historical analysis of the studies that originally seemed to make this, um, you know, idea credible. And one of the important things I argue in the book is that actually at the time that this idea was first being floated in the 19, you know, 50s and 60s, that this was due to fat and especially saturated fat from animals, that really there was also evidence around the same time that the really big shift that was actually probably driving this, uh, the health issues, was more related to sugar consumption. Mm-hmm. And I go through that in quite a bit of detail in the book. And it's very interesting. I didn't know this, you know, until doing the research for the book, but, but there was a very um, concerted effort by the sugar industry to to 
sort of quash that science, you know, and to sort of quiet the scientists that were doing that work. And the idea that this was actually coming from red meat and other animal-based foods was something that was much more favorable to the to the processed food industry and the sugar industry in particular. And it's, you know, it's really unfortunate to find that right from the start, this idea was something that was kind of, um, the science was really being affected by the, the money that's in the food industry. And then, you know, I, I cite a lot of more recent uh, studies of all different types, you know, clinical uh, studies as well as epidemiological studies showing that the original research that seemed to show that, you know, um, fat from animals was causing heart disease, it really doesn't stand up under more uh, careful scrutiny. So I think that that whole argument has has largely collapsed, but I also think there's this pretty good body of evidence now showing that processed foods, sugar as well, you know, but not just sugar, really highly processed foods especially, are are the key problem in the modern diet. And so I, that's a lot of the, the type of research that I've added to the new version of the book as well, because there's more and more good research coming out on that point. And I think the same thing goes for cancer. Uh, and you also uh, uh, talk about the healthy lifestyle fallacy, which is when you look at a lot of meat studies, uh, people who tend to eat a lot of meat tend to have more indiscriminate diets in general uh, and perhaps less healthy lifestyles. No, perhaps, you know, uh, ourselves excluded, you know, uh, we may follow very healthy lifestyles and uh, remain lean and avoid a lot of junk. Uh, include uh, unprocessed animal products in our diets and exercise and do all the right things. But in these big aggregate studies, you know, the folks who eat uh, hamburgers, hot dogs, and uh, bologna sandwiches uh, tend to be less healthy overall. So it turns out that, uh, you know, meat may be just uh, what's called an epiphenomenon of an unhealthy diet in those studies. Yeah, and that's exactly the same that's true as well with just processed foods overall, that the people that, because they haven't really, um, for one reason or other, they haven't either been exposed that much to health information or they have not chosen to follow it. <laughs> They're, you know, the same people. Yeah. Food deserts and, and so on. Yeah, so they're often often the same people that are eating, uh, as you mentioned, especially Dr. Hoffman, the the processed red meats. Um, those are often the same people that are eating a lot of unhealthy foods, things that are that you know are quite clearly very unhealthy foods, uh, processed sugary you know, snacks, um, you know, sweetened beverages, especially sodas and things like that, and. And, you know, most studies nowadays especially attempt to correct for this, but it's very difficult to do this because we've been told for decades now, you know, since about the mid-20th century, that red meat is something we should reduce or avoid. And so the vast majority of people in the United States that consider themselves health conscious are the same people that tend to avoid red meat. So that has a dramatic impact on what the studies look like. And so, yeah, I talk about that issue quite a bit in the book. And it really, to me, um, you know, as someone who was a vegetarian for over 30 years, I, I fully understand the mindset of thinking that you're going to be healthier if you don't eat meat. And I, you know, I've seen it and heard it so many times. And yet, when you really look at the research, 
and you really try to tease this out, there is really no good connection between meat, especially unprocessed meat, you know, and health problems. And in fact, to the contrary, you know, the reason I stopped, that I started eating meat again was because the evidence is also very, is really solid that as you age, you have more difficulty maintaining your muscle mass mm-hmm. and you have more difficulty, especially as a woman, dramatically increased, um, you know, difficulty maintaining your bone density. Yep. And so, and those things are closely connected. Mm-hmm. So I started eating meat again because I wanted to maintain muscle mass and I wanted to keep my bones strong. And it's just kind of that simple. Indeed. Okay, folks, at this point, let's pause and allow one of our sponsors an opportunity to share this vital message with you. This is Dr. Ronald Hoffman. As you know, I'm a big proponent of CBD to tonify the endocannabinoid system. I've found that it helps people relax and can support restful sleep, a real breakthrough in herbal products. The CBD brand I take personally and recommend to my patients is Plus CBD from CV Sciences. And now I'm excited about a new natural wellness line from Plus CBD, CBD Calm and CBD Sleep. CBD Calm helps ease tension, soothe irritability, and contributes to a greater sense of contentment through a blend of Plus CBD's award-winning full-spectrum CBD, plus L-theanine and 5-HTP. CBD Sleep aids occasional sleeplessness with CBD plus melatonin as well as soothing magnolia bark extract and relaxing lemon balm so you can get the rest you need and wake up alert and focused. Both products are backed by science with clinically researched active ingredients. To learn more and to order, visit pluscbdoil.com Hoffman and use coupon code Hoffman30 for 30% off. That's pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman. Thanks for listening and thanks for supporting our sponsors. They're what make Intelligent Medicine a continuing free resource to you. And now back to today's guest, Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, author of Defending Beef. Uh, but in the book, um, you have a chapter entitled, What's the Matter with Beef? And what you're saying here, basically, is that uh, this book is not a license to consume uh, all manner of uh, animal protein indiscriminately because there are problems with the meat industry as it currently exists. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that I could go in any sector. I could literally go in the the wheat sector, you know, or the corn or the carrot sector. You know, I could, I could show a lot of problems in whatever part of the food industry that I looked at in terms of production and processing and food safety and whatever I wanted to look at. But it's certainly true that in the meat industry, there are problems that that should be addressed. And I, you know, what I try to do is say to the people that are involved in raising cattle and are producing food and delivering food, you know, the, the distribution people and the retailers and the chef is that, um, w- we can do better, but we can also support those changes, you know, those improvements by selecting the kind of beef that where these, you know, these things are being done well. So I give kind of a list of things. For example, there's still a lot of hormone use in mainstream beef production. And it's not only not a good idea because of um, it's very well documented that it causes animal welfare problems for the animals where you use hormones in both on the milk side and on the beef side. And it's been outlawed in Europe for a long time. But there's, you know, really good reason to be concerned about potentially uh, human health uh, effects of that as well. So that's the kind of thing I just don't think should be allowed at all. But it's still fairly common in the meat industry. So when people are shopping for meat, I think that's something they should look for is avoiding that. 
They also say it's not just you are what you eat, it's you are what you eat eats. And so (laughs) that uh, creates sort of an argument for uh, grass-fed rather than uh, corn-fed, or sometimes it's sort of a synthetic uh, chemical mix that they're fed. Well, yes. There are actually a lot of things that have been used as cattle feed over the decades. And um, and unfortunately, you know, there isn't that much regulation of it. And, and in fact, in, uh, in poultry feed, you know, a lot of people know this, I think arsenic is added to stimulate growth. It, arsenic is something that's been used for a long time, and it's it's detectable. It's in you know in um, in chicken uh, when you purchase at the grocery store. So these are the kinds to eat, and as an alternative to beef, right? Yes, I know. Ironically, <laughs> there are a lot of problems. In fact, I would argue there are more problems. In fact, in chicken and pork production than there are in the beef industry. But the whole meat industry, you know, definitely needs to. Uh, there's a lot of room for improvement. I think the ecological impact is one thing, and I think more importantly, we've t- we've created these kind of industrial systems. We we bring large numbers of animals into huge concentrated settings, which are you know breeding grounds for. For, for you know um, evolution of more virulent forms of diseases, which is both bad for you know animals and the risk of plague for animals. And now you know we've been talking about it in the pandemic uh, in, in very recent history here, you know the possibility for something to jump from animals to humans and 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 that has happened in various settings around the world. So we we don't really want to have, I don't think, as a human race, we don't want to have these large concentrated animal operations for a lot of different reasons. But we can have really good meat when we have animals that are more, um, you know, in smaller scale operations, they're more integrated into, you know, diverse farming systems, and especially if they're on grass. I mean, that's kind of the optimal thing, whether it's beef cattle or other species. And when you do that, the food is healthier. It has, you know, lots of different kinds of um, nutrients in it that are absent in, the, in what's now the conventional systems. But it's also a safer food because, you you know, you avoid uh, the concerns about these pathogens that are really rampant in these kind of concentrated systems. So it's worth the effort and the expenditure for people who can afford it. But I, I want, my goal is that those would become the mainstream, you know, that that mm-hmm. kind of food is available for everyone. And we're a long ways from that right now. But the fact that it isn't the norm, to me, is not a reason to not not make it happen. <laughs> Another aspect of this is local production, because one of the big uh, energy costs of producing animal products is transporting the animals, you know, growing them in one locality and then transporting them thousands of miles uh, to the marketplace. Uh, local production, you know, maybe assisted with new technology, you know, uh, machine learning, artificial inte- uh, intelligence to uh, link uh, producers to uh, marketplaces, um, that might uh, help reduce the carbon footprint of raising animals. Yeah, and I mean, I, I'm really a fan of creating more regional food systems, you know, where food is more, much more uh, connected to the a region that it's you know, the, the people are seeking out foods that are in the region that they're living in and things that are appropriate for the region that they're living in. But also that whole question of the transportation, really the main footprint 
Um, the main transport footprint in the meat industry is the transportation of the feeds. So this is one more reason why it really makes sense. Yeah, because you're growing, you know, like the corn and soy, for example, is being grown in the upper Midwest. All of that's being shipped, to, for example, to North Carolina. That, that they get pretty much all their feed coming from, a, you know, a long way away. Mm-hmm. And that's a daily, you know, daily transport that's happening every day of these huge quantities of grain and soy coming from the upper Midwest. And this is just not, from an ecological standpoint, the right way to do things. And when you have animals on grass, especially the grazing animals, you know, when you're when you're talking about pigs and chickens, situation's a little bit different because they can't survive entirely on grass. But cattle can, whether they're raised for dairy or beef. And what we really should be working towards as a food system, you know, and as a country, is having the grazing animals in areas where they can subsist on the grass. And that can be done in the northern climates. It's not just the warmer parts of the country, just like the wild grazing animals have done, you know, with the caribou even surviving in the Arctic. But, um, you know, these are these are just from from an ecological standpoint, this is the right direction to be moving our food system in. But it also produces healthier food, as we've been talking about. I can't think of a state in the United States where there aren't any cattle, you know, practically anywhere. I, I, there might not be a lot of them in Delaware. I don't know. <laughs> but, but maybe it could be a few. Dairy farms. Yeah, no, there are there are cattle pretty much everywhere, and yep. and you know it's fascinating. I actually talk about this a little bit in the book. There's uh, Jared Diamond makes the argument in Guns, Germs, and Steel, which is a fantastic book that mm-hmm. I recommend yep. to anyone awesome. who hasn't already read it. But he talks about the the role of cattle, particularly, and uh, the grazing animals in general, but especially cattle, and sort of enabling humans to live all over the earth, and mm-hmm. and they they could go with peoples. Because you didn't have to uh, stop and grow crops and feed your animals. The cattle could subsist on whatever was growing there. I mean, it's really quite miraculous. And that's why, again, it's sort of ironic that there's this vilification of, of beef cattle because they've been something that has kind of lived alongside humans for tens of thousands of years, you know, uh, goats and sheep and cattle, and they have enabled humans to to survive on the earth in all parts of the earth that we wouldn't be able to inhabit otherwise, and to just be able to move. You know, they could move with humans because they could consume just grass and other forms of um, what would be inedible plants for humans, and they're converting it into meat and milk, and in some cultures, they also consume the blood periodically. So, but that really, um, that created, um, in fact, I heard recently, it's a fascinating thing, that, that the uh, the troops of Genghis Khan yes, actually survived largely on the blood <laughs> of, I think, the horses. Uh, it was pretty, pretty amazing, but that's because they couldn't cook. They didn't cook. Uh, they didn't have the capacity to have huge quantities of food being transported and have the, you know, the periodically camp and cook. So they just um, actually drank the blood of live animals. Not that I'm advocating for this, but it's just sort of a fascinating thing to think about this. You know, so these animals that are the horses as well, you know, they convert the grass that humans can't consume and then can convert it into substances that humans can survive on. This is something we've been doing forever. And cattle still do that today on the earth, about 70 5% or so of what the earth, 
um, the areas where are being grazed by cattle are actually areas where you can't grow crops. And in the United States, it's estimated to be about 80% mm. of the grazing that's taking place here are on areas where we cannot grow crops. So the cattle are playing this incredibly important role of sort of um, as mediators almost between the energy of the sunlight and the, you know, the moisture of the rain. And they're just taking that naturally occurring vegetation for the most part, and they're converting it into food for humans. And that's, that's absolutely miraculous. They're and the fact factories. that that keeps getting, yeah, and more, you know, I mean, they just provide, they're beautiful. They're, you know, they're just an element to our landscapes or an element to our culture that I think is, is, is something to be celebrated. And it, and it you know, it really, you know, it's, it, it troubles me so much that cattle are constantly being attacked and beef is constantly being attacked, and that's why I had to write these books. <laughs> right. Well, bottom line, I mean, what are the realistic prospects for change? Because we're up against some powerful entrenched forces. What can we do as voters and consumers? Yeah, I mean that, and that is exactly how I break it down in my mind. Is I think about each of us having, you know, we can first of all we can look at what we're eating ourselves and think about how can I. Um, both make myself a healthier human being, but also support the kinds of, you know, agricultural systems that I want to see more of, you know, things that I want to support, things that I believe in. And you actually can have quite a big impact. I mean, that that's the interesting thing about this. First of all, you can certainly positively affect your health by eating, you know, choosing better foods. But also a, a place like our ranch, which is, you know, a relatively small operation, you know, our individual ranch, when we have a customer that we work with um, from year to year, they're basically part of our, you know, lifeblood. It, it, and that's true for all of the kind of smaller scale farms and ranches around the, the country, is when an individual consumer decides to start buying from them and regularly supports them by purchasing from them, that actually makes a difference whether that farm or ranch can continue to exist. So you can have a big impact on supporting, you know, something in your region or in your community by your purchasing. And I and I also believe people will find that they're going to be eating uh, food that they enjoy eating more because they know more about it and it tastes better, as well as having more nourishment. The other side of the coin is each of us kind of thinking of ourselves as citizens and, you know, voters. And I was really delighted that when Tim Ryan was in the Democratic primary that he was making the food system so much a cornerstone of his campaign. And he was talking not just about, you know, sustainable regenerative agriculture, which was fabulous, but he was also talking about the health effects of good diets and eating really well-produced foods, and he was talking about the burden on our healthcare system and the cost of healthcare, to, you know, from all the people that are eating such poor diets nowadays. So that was that was just an amazing thing to see that in the, you know, it's sort of in the national media airwaves on the political side, and I'm hoping that's just the beginning of this whole, you know, issue getting a lot more attention. I think each of us, when we interact with our um, elected representatives should let them know that we care about these issues, you know, that we care about regenerative farming and that we think that should be supported by agricultural subsidies rather than just producing, you know, sort of mainstream commodity type production that is currently being supported by our uh, subsidy dollars. And also, 
you know, that we just want to see more uh, attention being paid by state and local and federal government to trying to support healthy food systems because there's a lot that can be done and a lot of really good things are being tried. You know, things like in California, we're incentivizing um, more carbon to be put into into the soil by farmers because there are a lot of practices you can do that will encourage that. And those are the kinds of things that where I think government can have a really positive role. Well, this was a great conversation. The book is Defending Beef, the Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat. And the author, Nicolette Hahn Nyman, it's N-I-M-A-N. And you can get that book from all the usual sources. Uh, Nicolette, are there any other uh, places to find you? Do you have a website or a blog? Or well, I am media very... Blog? Yes, I'm very active on uh, both Twitter and Facebook, and I have it's basically just defending beef at both places. And um, what we do on the on the defending beef uh, sites on Twitter and on Facebook is we just put a lot of stuff up there about a lot of the issues we've been talking about, everything from you know agricultural uh, articles about better ways to graze and things that are happening with wildlife you know preservation that you can help with with your grazing practices or whatever. And sometimes we put recipes, you know, things for how to prepare your beef or where to get it. Um, and, you know, so it's a, it's a wide range of um, articles and interviews and things like that. But it, it's, a, it's a great resource for anyone who's interested in these issues. Good stuff. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, thanks for being at the forefront of a movement to encourage people not to feel guilt when they consume uh, wholesome animal products. Uh, prepared the right way and grown sustainably with regenerative agriculture. This is, I think, a really, really important uh, part of our health picture and our environmental picture. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, Nicolette. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. As an Intelligent Medicine listener, you know how important it is to ensure that your supplements are genuine, safe, and effective. But vetting your sources and tracking down the exact products you need can be a hassle. That's why I'm inviting you to browse my online supplement dispensary at drhoffmanstore.com. We stock only the highest quality supplements, some of which are very hard to find elsewhere. The very same supplements I prescribe to my patients and take myself. My specially curated professional-grade supplements are fulfilled via the Fullscript network. Fullscript is the safest and most convenient way to purchase my medical-grade supplements. Buying through Fullscript offers fast shipping, optional refill reminders, a mobile-friendly site. It's safe, secure, and HIPAA-compliant, and offers world-class support. Just go to drhoffmanstore.com to sign up for your free Fullscript account. You'll also receive free shipping on all of your store orders. That's drhoffmanstore.com. drhoffmanstore.com.